Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Cyberpunk Now show produced by the MetaViews Network. Uh, we like to look at the relationship between technology, power, and society, and really kind of approach issues in as a provocative, if not big picture, uh, perspective. And one of the recurring tropes here on MetaViews is we always turn to transparency. Like, it's as if transparency is kind of the natural solution for all the evils that plague us. And certainly when it comes to algorithms and technology, it it makes sense that we'd be uh, transparency curious, for lack of a better word. But I think when it comes to politics, uh, a simplistic approach to transparency is dangerous. And, you know, that's why one of our associate producers, Nuviak, uh, recommended that we reach out to James D. D'Angelo, who is a really interesting researcher uh, who co-founded an organization called the Congressional Research Institute. And it really is meant to question legislative transparency and whether legislative transparency really lives up to the hype, let alone delivers on its promises, or alternatively, what if legislative transparency actually exacerbates and, and, and harms a lot of the problems that it tries to address. And so with that said, we... Uh, are really uh, fortunate enough, lucky enough that James has decided to join us today really for a kind of chat uh, in terms of uh, sharing your research, James, in terms of uh, your perspective on legislative transparency. But I also uh, I want to push you to go even further and maybe uh, ruminate or, or philosophize on the role that transparency is playing kind of in our policy discourse but also in the way in which we imagine our, our relationship with technology. So uh, that's sort of a broad sweeping intro, but why don't we start, James, by, you know, as a researcher, what was your tip-off? Like, what, what attracted you to transparency? And what was it about transparency that made you think, hey, maybe we're thinking about this wrong, and we need to re rethink this concept uh, from a completely different perspective? <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm sure I tell this story slightly different each time, but, you know, I'm, I'm Sicilian background and actually I have a lot of family who've been arrested in the mafia. I spent uh, 2005, I hung out with this guy for like two months over in Sicily. And uh, the week I left, he got arrested as he's my cousin, very close cousin. And he got arrested as one of the heads of the mafia. And uh, so I don't know if it's just genetic, but... I, I have a pretty strong understanding, perhaps, of things that drive people. And for what, for me, you know, I, when I consider the mafia or a government or any power broker or even someone like Jeff Bezos at Amazon, I, I find that uh, people are driven by fears and intimidation. And so, you know, as we know in the United States, in the late 1800s, there was this huge change in, in, we had a massive rise in inequality and partisanship, and then all of a sudden it just started dropping. And most people ignore the fact that right at that time, right at the very year that the Gilded Age ended and the Progressive Era begins, we introduced secret ballots. And everyone agrees that those secret ballots basically allowed individuals to avoid the pressure of the powerful. And so all these big, really powerful, well-moneyed groups could no longer send the guys with sticks, the thumb breakers, the bloody, the people who bloodied people out to the polls. And 
you know, very famous people were involved in some of this. So Edgar Allan Poe died on an election night. And many suggest that it was part of a cooping incident, which was an incident where you actually beat someone or kill them because they are going to the polls or because of how they voted, because you saw how they voted. One guy would get his nose shot off, right? Um, and one newspaper in Cincinnati said, well, it was a pretty good election. Only eight people were killed. And, and so we love to focus on this notion of bribery, but bribery is, it's just the crappiest of all methods of getting something done. So, um, you know, I'll go into that a bit in a second, but carrying this forward, we sort of had a, <clears throat> we had a very sort of telling event recently, and I don't care if you come from the right or the left, um, we, we saw this impeachment vote on, on Donald Trump. And in this impeachment vote, if you followed it sort of as I did, you saw that many common, uh, many pundits on both the right and the left. Um, so you had Republican and Democrat uh, members of Congress saying that if the vote was secret, Trump doesn't stand a chance. So he's going to lose. And, and many suggested, even Republican, a Republican Senator Jeff Flake suggested 30 to 35 of the Republican senators would flip on him. Um, but because it's public, they're terrified. Now everyone was like, oh, they're terrified because these rioters are going to come in and, and, and kill their family. I think that's a little overblown, um, though the threat of violence was there. I think it's more that a member of Congress doesn't want to be unseated because in almost every case, if you're unseated, you're going to be replaced by someone who's your direct opposite. So whether you like a Republican or not, they're terrified of being unseated because it, it means you've done the worst service to your constituency, which is you basically handed the reins over to someone who's the opposite of you. So if you're <clears throat> pro or against climate legislation and you're a legislator um, and you get unseated, that is the worst thing that can happen. So a lot of these legislators... Everyone calls it bribery, right? They accept bribes, though there's zero evidence that they're accepting bribes on anything. Um, not zero. Some, some legislators every year get indict, indicted for bribery. So we've got 8,000 sort of federal and state legislators. But when they get indicted for bribery, it's always on the most ridiculous thing. It's like on dad's dock or, or a postal thing where they mailed something to their grandmother. It's never on a health care bill or something like that. And on the federal level, we're just not seeing bribery at all. So it's one of the easiest things to turn up in the evidence, and it just never appears. Um, but if we rethink it as intimidation, just like with the secret ballots, so the secret ballot was mostly about bloodying people. And if you saw that, there's a very good Scorsese movie, Gangs of New York, which is all about beating people up before the vote, right? And and there's a, another recent one with uh, Matthew McConaughey. He's uh, it's like Free State or something. And you actually see the the they had glass. They had blown glass bowls where you would vote in. They thought this was the ultimate form of democracy. And for a while, these glass voting bowls where you would vote publicly into the glass bowl were the symbol of democracy. So you can see old cartoons where the transparent globe head symbolized the wonders of beautiful democracy. And that disappeared rather quickly. So the understanding of transparency, I think, is there. The fact that our representatives might uh, struggle with this, I think, is poorly understood. I think 
um, most people don't realize. So, you know, I speak to staffers a lot. I speak to the occasional member of Congress. And in hushed tones, they'll tell you death threats are commonplace, not just around the recent events uh, at the Capitol. Death threats are commonplace. And every year, they literally, the FBI goes after hundreds and arrests are made and people well, in jail. Um, so, and, and perhaps... Perhaps this is where social media makes those threats more visible and and sort of to your point, uh, highlights the intimidation, highlights the bullying and highlights the way in which not just, you know, uh, elected officials, but their staff. Right. And the people who support them on a policy level that there really is a kind of uh, not so much a culture of fear, but a culture of outrage that fosters then a culture of fear, right. especially when it comes to standing up to, you know, whether it be really loud voices or literal mobs in terms of people who have organized around particular issues. Right. And, and if we look at it purely mathematically, so in the last 10 years, a dozen members of Congress have run and hidden from flying bullets. Two of them have been hit. Um, so the real threats are there. And so the, those are threats really, I would say, from the public, right? So the mob aspect of the public that concerned the framers so much that they actually put secrecy into the Constitution, Article 1, Section 5, because they were so terrified of the masses. And, and what most of us don't realize, we're like, oh, the people are great, the people are great, except we really don't like anyone in our neighborhood or in our apartment building. But we're, well, the people are great. Right? But if you go back to Aristotle, he said there's three types of government that are easily to corruptible. One is an oligarchy, one is a monarchy, and one is a democracy. Because the democracy is so susceptible to anger and passion and demigods. And, and we've seen some examples of this. Um, but again, getting back to sort of this bribery versus intimidation, We've, we've considered it maybe from the people, and the people really do attempt to intimidate. And almost everyone I know on Twitter attempts to somehow intimidate a member of Congress. So right when, when uh, the, the senator from Maine doesn't vote the way they want, a liberal group will go, we're starting a GoFundMe to oust her from office unless she switches her vote. Well, that's actually really beautiful when I see that, because that is exactly how money and politics is done right so everyone misunderstands they all oh i gave that guy a thousand dollars and he changes his vote for me we see no evidence of that and in fact the last thing you do if you were the nra is walk up to aoc and whisper to her i'll give you ten thousand dollars to change your vote we know what's going to happen she's like uh gonna hit record on her phone and she's gonna say can you repeat that and she's gonna become massively famous for recording the bribe and you had on the right a character I really like, Thomas Massey, he went to MIT. I think he's very fresh. But the other, you know, a couple months ago, he said, in my office, two lobbyists tried to bribe me. And I wrote immediately as a comment, got no real response. I was going, he's lying. Why? Because first of all, he didn't announce who they were. So is he protecting criminals now? Right, is that his job? Or is it really just not happening? And, and the thing is, people say legalized bribery, left and right, legalized bribery. There is zero evidence of this. Now, if we take it on the flip side, let's look at corporations who do exactly what my liberal friend groups are doing. 
if you vote against us, we are going to take a ton of money. And where are we going to do? We're not going to give it to you because <laughs> that would be foolish. We are going to put a ton of money into your challenger. Who's your challenger? We don't care. Anybody who's not you. So Biden made a ton of money recently. Look at all the money he raised. Did, it, did he raise it because Biden's so wonderful? No, there's nobody on earth who thinks Biden's wonderful. He raised that money because he's not Trump and partly because he's not AOC or Elizabeth Warren, who scared sort of the hard, um, who, who scared sort of the moderate left. But he made it most of his money because he was not Trump. Um, and so he became this moderate option that people enjoyed. And so he raised a ton of money, but not one of those funders was like, oh, now I'm going to make sure he votes about the bridge in my backyard or, or something about that. They didn't care. So they fund the challenge. So but let me just, there's two ways they fund. The second way is they take out massive negative ads. And 95% or more of dark money is negative ads. Campaigns. Where does that money go? Well, we know it doesn't go to the candidate. We know where it goes to Facebook or Google or to a, a television network. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think it's easier to make the argument that there's intimidation going on, that, that politics is becoming this kind of toxic culture. So how do we change the narrative around and, and I'll instead of using the word secrecy, I'll use the word privacy, because that's what I loved about the way you described the kind of secret ballot that it's the privacy of the voter, right? right? And the privacy that they're able to exercise over themselves. And what right. I'm sort of hearing from you, correct me if I'm wrong, is that legislators deserve privacy too, right? That as part of their job, as part of their ability to do their job, there is a certain level of public scrutiny that has to be in place, but at the same time, they should be afforded the privilege to have conversations in private. They should be afforded the privilege to do brainstorming and policy development in private. How do we either change the narrative so that people recognize that, you know, there's a catch 22 with trust that we need to trust them first for them to be able to then do the right thing to earn our trust. And, and what is the line between where there should be privacy and secrecy, but admittedly where there does need to be scrutiny and where there does need to be oversight? Exactly. How do we have that mature or nuanced conversation? So there's, there's a couple interesting things. So I don't argue that we should give them privacy because they deserve respect. I don't argue that we should have secrecy because they deserve respect. I argue that we should give them the secret vote because whenever they do, the data screams that the legislation comes out better. So we passed the only powerful piece of environmental legislation in the last 50 years in 1990. And the legislators, both in the House and the Senate, took the risk because the public comes after them for working in secret they took the risk of closing down the committees and all the committee deliberations. And if you ask them why, they always say the same answer, to get rid of the lobbyists. And both the right and the left love the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990, which are given that really boring title because they didn't want to get anyone excited. But if you talk to anyone at NASA, they'll go, I can see that legislation from every satellite. The air is better, much better. Um, all environmental bills that get put in front of a public um, uh, vote or a public discussion become immediately polarized, become immediately captured by lobbyists. We see this as well with taxation. So the 1986 tax bill, which surprisingly happened under Reagan. Everyone's like, oh, Reagan destroyed taxation for the world forever. 
It's not true, actually. Taxes were, were much better the day he arrived in office. Um, uh, I mean, much worse the day he arrived in office. Uh, so the, the, the taxes, so most people don't know is that we, we basically thrust transparency on Congress in 1970 under Richard Nixon. And the data correlating that to the rise in lobbying, the rise in campaign finance, the rise in inequality, incarceration, and climate inaction, and the debt, and filibusters, and all that is remarkable. I mean, the correlations are remarkable. And not just because we look at the 1970 point, but we have the few reversals. So we see the great tax bill of 1986. We see the 1990 stuff. We see the recent Trump impeachment vote. We see all this evidence that basically keeps saying the same thing, that when the legislators vote secretly, they actually do their jobs far better. And the data is, I mean, I usually just write, write back to people, go, show me one example where this isn't true. And then they just get, they send me angry threads forever. And I'm just like, but I'm still waiting for the example. And so if you're watching this and you're confused, find the example where transparency improved legislation for the public. So, so then uh, allow me to ask you to evoke or uh, channel your inner Machiavellian you know what are the uh, what are the the counter arguments? Like, are there any arguments against legislative secrecy, against uh, affording uh, uh, elected officials a certain amount of secrecy that that keep you up at night, or that you're currently trying to figure an argument against, or do you feel that this is an airtight case and that both the evidence as well as the kind of historical precedents? are there to support this kind of shift in the way in which we govern ourselves? No, ex excellent question. And I think like most things, there is no hard yes. Like everything to do with this is perfect and everything to do with this is wrong. And I think what's remarkable here is the framers actually came up with a very good solution. And the solution is ingenious because first of all, we know that citizens, including you, including the people I work with, who are professors of Congress at Harvard and other universities, they don't follow even 0.1% of all the legislative votes in Congress, right? They don't follow 0.01% of all the documents. So citizens, we know, every study since Aristotle has basically said citizens do not follow legislators, period. Um, so we're really not taking anything away by going secret, but the framers didn't love that. And so they did this dual-tiered thing. So this isn't codified it's not a statute but this is exactly what they did until 1970 which is all committees would be secret the committees and so legislation would move through the committees and it would go through this ingenious thing called the committee of the whole which could reject legislation but could not pass it so it could work in secret you could reject it in secret which basically worked as a special interest clean out machine and then the final vote was always and still is public. And so we get two types of votes on every piece of legislation. There isn't a single bill that would come out of Congress based on our recommendations, based on the framers' actions, that wouldn't have a public vote or a public discussion. So you get the, you get the best of both worlds. And I, I personally, I couldn't imagine anything more fun than I've seen the, the impeachment vote being done both ways, so a secret vote and then a public vote. We know, and Italy is always a great example here because in their constitution, they allow for this. They allow for both an open and a secret vote. And the numbers are always insanely different, 
right? So they went to mm-hmm. oust one of the most corrupt leaders in 1987, very similar to Trump. He was intimidating people. It was very tough. And in the public vote, he was cleared. He was free. He was, he was the best by just some absurd amount. Five minutes later, the secret vote, he lost by an absurd amount. Um, and, and the Italian constitution, similar to what we kind of believe, is they're like, well, what do you do when you've got both? Because two doesn't get you anywhere. They lean on the secret vote because they believe it's truer. They believe it's more with, it, it, it basically to us, the difference between the two is the amount of intimidation. So, so if I'm to understand you correctly, if what you're suggesting is that at the committee level is where you have secrecy and then at the final or kind of full sort of open legislative, whether congressional or parliamentary, that's where you have your, your public votes. Does that mean that this kind of uh, uh, process or this kind of method could be implemented immediately because committees have it within their purview, it's the not, ability to make it a closed or in-camera? It's actually constitutional tactics. So this takes no constitutional change. All it, all it involves is revoking a rule change that, that was pushed by Nixon. Right. I don't know Mm -hmm. what more wonderful thing could be said than that. Like Congress could do it tomorrow. Now, why doesn't Congress do it tomorrow? Because even even uh, Chuck Schumer went up and said, well, secret vote, Trump's impeached. He probably wanted Trump impeached, but he didn't call for the secret vote because they're terrified of the press and the public who just believe that transparency is the end all and cure all to everything, despite 2000 years of evidence against it. I I mean, I. I think the press has a vested interest in transparency because it's the the fodder for news articles, right? It's the same way that the press has an incentive in polarization because it increases the drama. It increases the emotion. It's more likely people will tune in and watch the news. Right. Now, obviously, right. And, and, you know, we're in a bit of a different world in which more increasingly people are getting their their news from social media they're going direct to the source right they're connecting directly to politicians they're connecting directly to activists or advocates or industry right so where's where's the opportunity or what is the narrative challenge for, for you in the congressional research institute to to frame this in the way that you i think have successfully done today that this will get us better outcomes this will get us better policies, oh, yeah. better laws, better government. The data's remarkable. How do you, but, Again, but how, do you, think, how do you throw this into a world that doesn't always care about data? But I, I think, again, let's look at the, the numbers. So we don't need to argue it passionately. You said that the press would be bummed out because we remove them from something they are covering. They are not. They do not cover congressional committees. We do not see articles on congressional committees. There isn't a single member of the press who's following 0.1% of congressional committees. And this is where it all gets corrupted. This is where you change the word from should to shall with the lobbyists in the room. In 1970, the lobbyists were in the lobby. There's no place more that they hate to be. So they go home when you put them in the lobby. And the few times in history, 1986, 1990, when they were pushed in the lobby, they went crazy. They were furious. This happened even recently, 2013. It happens all the time. And they go nuts. But the press isn't the one getting kicked out of their press isn't there. I sit in congressional committees all the time just for curiosity or to see people or whatever. Never see a member of the press. Do I see lobbyists? Oh, hell yeah. 
right? And do I see on the woman's phone, she's counting exact votes and sending it to her boss. And who is a lobbyist really? They're just mercenaries working for Jeff Bezos or the Cokes or oil companies or pharmaceutical companies or Saudi Arabia or Israel, all these organizations who, as soon as they get that information, are gonna run their negative attack ads, right? And so they're not gonna go, oh, maybe we should bribe that guy. Well, give me a break, like that's, it's not gonna work, right? Bribery is just, it, no mafia person has ever bribed anybody, you know? So who, who, who do you think, who are your allies or who are the people, who are the low hanging fruit from, uh, uh, you know, a persuasion perspective in terms of the people, whether inside of Congress or outside, who you think are going to get behind this idea that there needs to be on the committee level, a, a culture of secrecy, a, a culture of productivity, even you could bring it. <laughs> It's a good question. I mean, when we started really pushing this in 2015, our allies were zero. They were nowhere. Um, that's changed dramatically. So there's been a lot more articles about this. Um, there's been many more scholars accepting this. So we're seeing it in academia. It's now being pushed down through students because the teachers are teaching it. You've got David Posen at Columbia University. You have professors who've written me and said they've changed their mind about it. So these are professors at Princeton. You have Francis Lee, who writes one of the biggest textbooks, who's now taking this very seriously and presented in Congress last year aggressively the problems of transparency. And let's get rid of scholars. The people who supported her talk the most were the legislators. They all get it. They know the answer is if they can get all these people belittling them off their back and terrifying them off their back, they could write better legislation. And, and keep in mind that when you're in public, and, and Madison said this, Madison had been in legislators for, legislatures forever when he was 39 and wrote the Constitution, been working in Virginia forever. He said that if the lights are on, the people on the right walk in the room, the people on the left walk in the room, and they just yell at each other. You shut the door and they just go, hey, what are we going to do? Let's get this solved. And they work across the aisle and they figure things out. But they can't afford to look like they've changed their minds. And Madison said this very clearly when asked about why they wrote the Constitution in three months of abject secrecy. Wax on the windows, curtains, armed guards. So, I mean, if we just want to take their understanding and keep in mind, these are people who thought about legislatures forever. There's a reason why Article 1, Section 5 is a very couched, but very straightforward declaration for the power and benefit of secrecy. So, I mean, we're almost, we're pretty much out of time, but I, I kind of need to ask you to extrapolate this to a, a higher level, because I introduced this by saying, I think we sort of fetishize transparency blindly without looking at its cause and effect and without looking at the consequences of having such a, you know, to, to paraphrase what you've been saying, a highly intimidating, a highly bullied environment. So, I mean, have you extrapolated outside of the legislative environment the, 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 the pitfalls of transparency and how maybe on a broader level, either on a personal perspective or even on a social perspective? Because, you know, as an aside, I spend a lot of time right now on Twitch and, and learning how people use it. And it's remarkable how many users are paranoid about being doxxed, 
right? And the whole fear of being doxxed sort of permeates a lot of creators. So to what extent is, is the pitfalls of transparency not just within the legislative realm, but something we should be meditating on as we live our lives in this very transparent or technology-driven world? You, you, I think you've already given it a lot better thought than I have. So I, I don't really have a great answer there where it would work outside of government. I think it's important to think of government sort of as the anti-market. And we know there's huge, massive problems in markets. They lead to monopolies. They lead to worker abuses. They lead to slavery, as we've known throughout history. Um, and so government, where you have separation of powers and all this is great, but they, they, to provide, the legislature was Article One for a reason, and it needed protection. Well, it's really expensive to protect legislatures, legislatures, because there are too many of them. So if you go home and you're a legislator, you don't have personal security. You don't have job security. You, you're really not given any protection. The only, the real cheap protection to give them, to prevent them from being captured by powerful groups and bullies is secrecy. It's cheap. And that's what protected voters back in the day. That's why we don't get killed on election day, right? It's cheap protection. And cheap is sometimes good, right? Because the expensive stuff may or may not work because houses would sometimes get burned two weeks after the election. And you're like, well, was that because I voted? So I don't know how, I, I, clearly everyone can relate to, you know, how different they will act in front of people in certain settings and how differently they'll act, you know, when they're with their friends or by themselves. Um, so there, there, there's clearly something there. Um, and looking at this video, I probably should have shaved and took in a shower today instead of homeschooled my son who's home right now. I told him, oh, one hour, please. Um, but yeah, it is what it is. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't have great thoughts in that world. Well, I, I, I mean, I appreciated the answer you gave in terms of the allies or the way in which you're start allowing these ideas to sort of percolate their world through the, the policy and legislative ecosystem. So I, I thank you very much for coming on today and, and providing us with this conversation. I, I'd love to circle back and talk to you again in the future, if only because I, I hope that both your work and the kind of climate will renew an interest in this kind of legislative secrecy and the balance between secrecy and transparency when it comes to, to making better government. So, you know, thanks again for your time and, and best of luck with, uh, with your work. I, I will, of course, point people to the Congressional Research Institute as the place where James uh, does a lot of his work and co-founded. And uh, in general, I mean, I'll follow you on Twitter if only to keep up with a lot of the research and stuff that you're doing. But I think this concept of the pitfalls of transparency, as I mentioned, applies beyond just the legislative realm. And perhaps some of the work you're doing will provide insights for all of us. And, and not just those in the Sicilian mafia, but, but those who appreciate kind of the, the role of secrecy in general as, as part of a natural human lifestyle. So thanks again, James. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it.